Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is 1997's Paul McCartney in the world tonight or Paul McCartney in the world tonight as the title screen implies a different reading of that title. Um, but this is a documentary about the writing and recording of Paul's Flaming Pie album released to generally very positive reviews. The album that is this film is an hour long promotional making of doc broadcast on TV at the same time. But both album and film mark an important milestone in Paul's career. Flaming Pie is his 10th solo studio album, and it debuted at number two in the UK charts, his most successful album chart since Flowers in the Dirt eight years earlier. And it also marked his first top 10 entry in the US album chart since Tug of War released 15 years earlier. But more importantly than any of that is that Flaming Pie is the first Paul album released after the Beatles anthology project, something that he addresses head on in both the film and the album. So, Ed, first question, is it fair to say then at the point of this album being released and this film being released that Paul was riding on a bit of a wave of renewed Beatles popularity yeah it does seem to be like I, I have a really clear memory of that time being a sort of teenage uh, Britpop fan at the time that the Help Charity album was being recorded do you remember that yeah yeah, yeah. the um, Smoking Mojo Filters right right yep. exactly so you know all, all these artists this was in 1995 I'm going to say and uh, or maybe 96 um, all these artists we're going to record a song in a day using the sort of instant karma template. Um, and then it would be released uh, very quickly. Um, and so it was, it was all one day. And this was like in sort of pre-internet days, 
you know, I sort of remember it being in the NME and stuff like that and sort of being on Radio 1 during the day and say, that, oh, like, you know, this artist has been spotted on their way to Abbey Road Studios and all this kind of stuff. It was really exciting. And so uh, a sort of super group of Paul Weller, Noel Gallagher and Steve Craddock was sort of called the Smoking Mojo Filters were recording a version of Come Together at Abbey Road Studios. And Paul turned up. Did he play on it, or was he just kind of yeah, there in the studio? It, didn't he? Well, did did you leave out Noel Gallagher? Wasn't he one of the key people in that? Did I not mention Noel Gallagher? No, I don't think he did. Oh, okay. I could be wrong. I don't right, uh, but, uh, because my my recollection of this was that being an Oasis fan at the time, the Oasis were always talking about how brilliant the Beatles were, basing their entire career on the Beatles, etc. Hmm. And I remember this project coming about and me thinking, oh, Noel is actually now playing with his hero, his musical yeah. idol. Yeah, and that was quite an exciting thing for that reason to see that sort of come together it really did feel like a, a proper super group coming together for the first time for us at that age yeah definitely and it, and it was quite exciting that remember i'm not sure i would have framed it in this way but thinking in a sense that like this it, this was a coming together no pun intended like a, <laughs> a coming together of a couple of generations maybe three generations if you think of paul weller as being slightly pre-Britpop, which I suppose he was with, uh, with, you know, having started in the 80s, really. And so that sort of Britpop generation had really sort of embraced the Beatles, certainly. And Paul, being the most sort of uh, visible member of the Beatles, who's still sort of creating music, which George had kind of stopped doing by that point, really. Mm. Like George had not released an album for a few years by this point, and I don't think ever, ever would again until his posthumous one. Um, and Ringo was just sort of off doing his his thing. Yeah, yeah he's always off doing a thing. Isn't yeah, he, just, yeah, just sort of saying peace and yeah. love in his garden quite a lot, or whatever <laughs> he was doing at the time. But Paul was like, it, it felt like because, and he was sort of still around a little bit in that sort of London scene, you know, he was sort of, you would see him, he would sort of turn up at the Brit Awards or whatever it was, that kind of thing. Yeah. So but this is a point at which younger audiences are, embracing the Beatles through having been encouraged to by their favourite artists of the day, specifically calling out the Beatles as an influence on them, Oasis being the sort of obvious, you know, the biggest example of that at the time. I was a big Oasis fan. Um, I, I had been a big Beatles fan since I was a kid, since before that, you know, I, you know, like from the early days. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you know, I wasn't I wasn't getting into them late like all these other chances, you know. I'm a quarryman fan. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But that sort of uh, fandom of Oasis and bands like that uh, allowed me to sort of reconnect with them. Like, I don't know if you remember, like when Oasis did that cover of "I Am the Walrus," yeah, uh, which was sort of one of their B sides. But they went on the Jules Holland show and played that with an orchestra. Yeah, it was really exciting. It that really felt like a a a moment, if you like, because like dads was sort of I don't think my dad did, but uh, but dads were watching that and yeah. Oh, okay. It was like a cross-generational like, connection there, wasn't it? I know. I remember um, going to see Oasis. I think one of the very first gigs I ever went to was seeing Oasis at Earl's Court, which I want to say was 95. 
I think. I think those Earl's Court gigs were 95, yeah. Yeah. Um, going to see Oasis there and the, the support act were Bootleg Beatles. And yeah. then at the end of the Oasis set, their encore was I Am The Wars and the Bootleg Beatles came on and played it with them. Yeah. That was very fun to see. And like, going, you know, at that age, going to see essentially a live Beatles band. And I wasn't really there for them, but that was awesome. Mm, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think Paul is kind of riding the crest of this wave. Uh, and, of course, Anthology is released right in the middle of this, you know, right in the middle of sort of renewed popularity. Um, and do you think by design or do you think that's just, it's a, a combination of lots of factors that mean that that is the time? But it, I, I kind of always got the impression that it was almost by coincidence that the anthology project came together when it did mm. at a time when there was uh, already a sort of resurged interest in revisiting the Beatles legacy. Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, serendipity really, because obviously that project, the anthology project had been going on for quite a while. Like those interviews that you see, a lot of them are from sort of 92, 93, I think. So they've been recording it for quite a while, the whole thing. So yeah, by the time the Britpop thing happens, they've already been doing the anthology for a little bit. So yeah, it just, it works out quite well, I think. And I guess I was quite surprised that in this film, because you don't get it often, but in this film, Paul, basically accepts and admits that the reason that this album, Flaming Pie, is, uh, or turns out the way that it does, is because uh, he is riding off the back of the anthology. He says, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Literally is what it was. I'm not ashamed to admit that this is, you know, coming off the back of the anthology. Mm. Um, And he is very pointedly releasing an album that has a Beatle connection in its title. And I I guess the story or the way the album is positioned when it's released is uh, that this is Paul getting back to his roots like he did when he was in the Beatles. Yeah, so I think the 90s seems to be a time when Paul is just getting to grips with his legacy and how comfortable he is with it and what he wants to do with the rest of his career. So it's funny, like at the start of this film, the very start of this film, he talks about turning 40. So he's about 55 at this point, I guess. Mm. Uh, and he talks a lot about turning 40 and people say, oh, life begins at 40 and I started jogging and, uh, and then I started painting and things like that. So it's, it seems in quite a sort of, uh, it, it, it's an it's an odd bit of framing because you think, well, what, how did you feel about turning 50, which he did yes, five years right. ago? Now, why? It's a, you know, it's a strange, it's, so I mean, he seems to you, be... You could argue that there is, you know, if he's trying to capitalise on a younger generation being into his music again, he doesn't want to admit his actual age. Well, no, that's true. But I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest, if if that's what he wants, probably don't have a mullet at the same time as well. Like, you know. <laughs> Dead giveaway. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I think at this point he is, so he's becoming comfortable with the idea that he was a Beatle and that that is probably his greatest achievement. I'm not sure he would frame it that way necessarily, but I think he, he is appreciating that that is mainly what people want from him to be Beatle Paul. They want to hear Beatles songs and they want to hear him tell stories about the Beatles, which I don't think he was all that comfortable with for a long time. Obviously in, in Wings for years, he wouldn't play Beatles songs live. And then I think it was Flowers in the Dirt tour was the first time that he really sort of he had a, a set list that was really peppered with Beatles songs. Mm. Again, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wonder how many unintentional puns I can get in this whole episode. Uh, <laughs> and so he's, he seems quite comfortable with it now. And so Flaming Pie, because he's just spent all that time on the anthology project, 
there was a narrative of sort of older rockers, if you like, around this time, making albums where they said, I'm really getting back to my roots. Elton John said this on like every album that he made in the noughties. Like, <laughs> he would always say that the narrative around it was like, oh, yeah, I started to remember what it was like when we made albums in the 70s. And I thought we'd go back and do that again. And then like three years later, he'd be saying the same thing about yeah. this. And it's like, oh, yeah, the last one was rubbish. Now I'm really getting back to the roots. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now, this now one, I'm going to try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, re- I'm getting back to the proper roots this time. You know, like when I was nine and learning how to play the piano. <laughs> <you know? laughs> But do you think that the album itself, Lone Pie, reflects that approach? You know, this idea of him getting back to it, this idea of him sort of capitalising on his Beatles legacy. Mm. I remember when it was released, and maybe this is me misremembering, but I thought that the idea or the concept of the album was I'm going to start writing and releasing an album of Beatles-like tunes. Right. So this idea of him getting back to his roots, I think the idea was we would, we would hear something a bit more Beatlesque from Paul yeah. uh, for the first time in a long time. Yeah, I don't feel that way listening to the album. Yeah. I feel like this is a Paul McCartney solo album, and it just happens to come after the anthology. Yeah, so I think I think it's sort of fairly Beatly in places. So certainly as a as a teenage Beatles fan, this was the first Beatles solo album that I bought. I, I sort of didn't get into the other solo stuff by any of them for much later. But again, because it was sort of, you know, had that sort of uh, Britpop endorsement thing on it and it was 1997, you know, this came out about three months before Be Here Now by Oasis, you know, killed the whole thing stone dead, you know. So he, <laughs> so he just he just about got it in under the wire, you know. And um, But yeah, it, it, it really felt commensurate with that time. It's, but it, it's interesting the way you frame the question because I... It is hard to think of songs that are necessarily Beatley in it. Yeah. So, so I think that some of the ones like Little Willow wouldn't sound out of place on the White Album necessarily. You could say the same about Calico Skies. Yeah, I can see that. That's um, yeah. That but, definitely has like a Blackbird feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah. The title track is is quite sort of Lady Madonna esque. That kind of boogie woogie, yeah, boogie piano, boogie piano kind yeah. of thing. And you know, I, I think sort of be- Beautiful Night is obviously with that sort of 4-4 four, four piano thing in the same kind of rhythm as uh, Let It Be or Long and Winding Road or Hey Jude. Um, so it's kind of got that in common with it. But, you know, I mean, th- these are not... You're right to point that out because I don't think it, 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 the whole thing is necessarily beatly. Yeah. I, th- I think what he's talking about more is a, an approach. And it's almost like an approach to sort of proper song craft, if mm. you like. You know, I think there, yeah. there's a lot of these songs... That I remember listening to it and thinking because at, at the time, by the way, uh, I would have been under the impression that like Paul McCartney's solo work and Wings in particular was naff, and uh, and that sort of Beatles uh, group music was great and all the solo stuff was rubbish. Yeah. You know? Although, yeah. like being a teenager, I probably would have been under the impression that the John Lennon stuff was earthy and real, you know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and everything else was throwaway, you know. But but certainly, like, Flaming Pie was close enough to what I liked, i.e. the Beatles, to make me really enjoy it, you know. I, I, you know, I really thought and think that it's a really good album. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things about the release, again, I could be misremembering, but I seem to recall being a big deal at the time, was the fact that it was Jeff Lynn producing. Right. And uh, obviously having worked on the anthology singles... There was a sort of implication, in my mind at least, that Jeff Lynne was almost going to help Paul McCartney reconnect with that sort of style of music. Mm. 
Jeff Lynn is nowhere to be seen in this film. No, no. Like, I mean, I say nowhere. He is in one scene where they're playing guitars uh, opposite each other. Yeah, yeah. But he produces the album, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and also is listed as a sort of co-collaborator on several songs on the album. But yeah. his contributions uh, really aren't recognised in, in the film. This is very much a Paul-focused documentary. Yeah, it's sort of interesting to think of the dynamic between Paul and Jeff because if you think so like Jeff Lynn comes on to the anthology project as George's guy right he's George's mm. mate they were in the Travelling Wilburys he's produced George's album Cloud Nine and I think he comes on to the anthology project as a sort of compromise because George thinks that Paul has too many of his guys working on the project and he says okay well i'll do this as long as jeff lynn produces the new songs right i think was kind of his condition for working on it so that must be an interesting dynamic in those sessions free as a bird and and real love where where jeff i think because we talked about jeff lynn before in the traveling wilburys documentary episode Mm. uh, about him seeming uh, to generally just kind of feel quite grateful to be there because he's a huge Beatles fan, you know, but absolutely self-avowed Beatles nut and, you know, just delighted to be in the same room as them and does a really good job in those sessions, by the way. But I think it's interesting that what happens as a result of that is that, because George is not really making music anymore, particularly. And, uh, Maybe Jeff's got the bit between his teeth, and so has Paul. And Paul, like who, so you know, this guy who's been brought in as a sort of foil for George in a way, goes off and then makes a record with Paul. You know, and, yes, yeah. And right, I think yeah. it's interesting to think is I'm all, I feel like I'm always second guessing the sort of little niggles between Paul and George in their sort of older years. But I wonder if George is thinking like, but he's my mate. What are you doing? You know? yeah, 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 yeah. I, I wonder. I, I bet there was a bit of him that kind of thought thought that way about like, well, why has he gone off and make a record with Paul? What's yeah, yeah. About, especially you know? as he, that was as as it was a um, stipulation for the anthology project to bring in his guy. Mm. There must be a sense of I know that I'm doing this. It's a stipulation for my part because I am reacting to you having a lot of your guys on there. So like. Uh, or it's almost like Jeff becomes like a turncoat in that respect, you know, like George is left with nothing. Turns heel like a, yes. like a wrestler, you know, like, just reveals the secret affiliation he's had all along. <laughs> Hits George like- with a steel chair. <laughs> The other thing about that is there are other contributors on the album as well. And I know we, we do get to see Steve Miller uh, and George Martin as well. But on the whole, it does feel like a very much a Paul affair, the mm. whole film. And I I feel like Paul is, is almost deliberately leaving out the fact that this is an album with contributors on it. Possibly to, you know, in some way help promote it as his own solo album. Like, you know, there, there's a commercial factor there, I guess. Maybe it's simpler to just position it as Paul's solo album than to, to think of it as a sort of a more collaborative effort. But mm. but I do think it's, it's strange that it has to be positioned that way because it's, it's, it's very much on the album sleeve that these are people he's working with. Yeah, and in fact, the, the way that Jeff Lynne's contribution is portrayed, you, there's a pretty stark contrast between that Travelling Wilburys documentary, which is all about how collaborative the whole thing, you know, it, here is a Beatle really willing and happy to collaborate with other artists. And that is the focus of this documentary. Here they are all in this in this house playing acoustic guitars and having a great laugh. And 
the equivalent of that with Flaming Pie, which seems to have involved exactly the same amount of collaboration with Jeff Lynne, is that Jeff is in one scene. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it kind of maybe it shows you a bit about uh, what Paul wants to put across from this documentary. I mean, obviously, make no mistake, this is a sort of puff piece. This is yeah. this is to promote this album. So there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it should if its purpose is to promote the album, then absolutely it should put across the image of himself that he wants. But it's quite telling for that, maybe. It's also quite telling that if this is him putting across the image of himself that he wants, this is that image. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. because this puff piece doesn't get puffier than when we are seeing Paul in his uh, supposed downtime. And it really gave me flashbacks to the anthology where whenever George is being interviewed, it's like in a office block or something. And then it cuts to Paul and he's like sailing his own boat and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. camping out by himself and like, you know, creating a fire. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also makes a fire in this film as well. And it's yeah. almost like he, I can imagine there's something in his um, head that's like there is something about creating a fire that almost shows him in a like like his Prometheus himself. Yeah, like, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. Um, this is something that I am creating because this is the kind of um, person I am. Yeah, um, it's, it's sort of earthy and and um, it, it 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 sort of sh- shows him off as a guy of sort of simple pleasures, if you like. It's like yes, he's very rich and very famous, but he also likes just sort of riding horses through the woods and going for a walk in the woods, you know. Yeah, I mean he does at one point he does say that when he takes a break from work, uh he spends his time going into the woods mm. and making paths out of the woods. Mm. Which is that's just that's not a hobby by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> is it? It's just no one does no one's even if that is what you like doing that's not the kind of thing that you suggest is how you spend your time. No. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I was even right at the very start of the film, when we first see him in a forest, he's got like... My, the note that I made at that point was, um, we seem to now be watching Paul McCartney's deforestation project. Because <laughs> he's got like construction, um, like helmet and yeah, yeah. Uh, headphones and, on, yeah, goggles yeah. and that. Yeah. And he's cutting up branches of a chainsaw yeah. so that he can make a fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like not everyone needs to do that. <laughs> not everyone needs to do that. But also, I'm very conscious when I'm watching this film that every time we see Paul doing something like that, he knows he's being filmed for this documentary. Hmm. So this is him wanting to be seen doing these things. Yeah, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that it's contrived because maybe he does spend his time doing that. But it's it's interesting that this is part of the image that he wants to put across. Yeah, and, and it's you know, so there are bits in this. Flaming Pie is kind of marketed as sort of earthy, rootsy, bare feet and floorboards and acoustic guitars kind of album. And and it's and I remember the marketing about it. And so there's a bit in the sort of the CD inlay card and stuff that talks about it's sort of largely recorded at home. Now, obviously, we, we know that his home recording studio is pretty state of the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see footage of it in this documentary and you can see this is a proper thing you know it's not like he's recording it in a barn you know it's yeah, yeah. Uh, you know well he is a converted barn but still you know it's sort of portrayed as a sort of a, a sort of McCartney family album almost or sort of that's where it's coming from but then you know there's footage here of James McCartney his son who plays uh, a guitar solo on Heaven on a Sunday it's great. It's uh, really good. It's a great guitar solo, and it's really good seeing that footage of them yeah, play together. Yeah, but that's it. You don't see him anywhere else in it. You know? No. So, so, so it may have been, So we know James McCartney uh, is not from the, the music he's released. He's 
he's not very keen on sort of being associated with his dad too much and fair enough you know he's sort of walked out of interviews before where people are talking too much about his dad and you know that's that is completely reasonable so it may just be that actually he didn't want to appear in this documentary you know because he kind of wants to be an artist under his own steam and, and fair play but you know it in terms of like Paul talks in in the film about oh it's really nice that he's getting really good at guitar and it's really nice as a dad just to be able to do this thing with him and you kind of thought you thought that would have been extended to having James a bit more front and center not necessarily as like a talking head in the documentary or anything but just kind of like being there being more footage of him you know yeah yeah I, I mean I very much got the impression that the film crew for this documentary were having to work around Paul's busy schedule. I, I guess it's, you know, we've covered a lot of documentaries on this podcast and a lot of the films that we've talked about have, like, a vault's worth of archive footage to use or it is a proper production um, and there's lots of talking heads or whatever. But this feels like, you know, they turned up on three separate days recorded as much as they possibly could and then edited it together in yeah. a short space of time which is why I think it's it's quite a patchy documentary yeah and it feels like it's been sort of cut together as best as it could to to have some kind of cohesive narrative but I don't know how well it achieves that because I do feel like they're probably working with quite a limited amount of footage that they're able to capture yeah I get that impression so it's probably worth uh, like setting in context of sort of what is happening in Paul's life at this mm-hmm. point, because I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. This is probably only filmed over a few days, but I think but I think while he's sort of keen to promote the new album in whatever way he can, he has more important things going on in his life at the moment. So to put it in context, um, so this film and the album is released in May 1997. So Linda McCartney was first diagnosed with breast cancer in December 1995 and she sort of ha- had a fairly hasty operation which and the fact and this was known about this was known to the public and sort of Paul had publicly announced the operation uh, was a success and no new information was sort of given after that to the press so basically mm-hmm. like publicly that is all the information that has been released at the end of 1995 so privately what has happened is that um the operation has not been a total success. The cancer has spread. They haven't quite caught it early enough. And she begins chemotherapy in 1996. So what this means is that uh, there are a few events sort of around that time that she doesn't attend. So one is the opening of the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which is very much a sort of a Paul McCartney joint. You know, it has, yeah. it has his name all over it. You know, the Queen opens it. And that's in uh, June 1996. So Linda doesn't attend that event. She's sort of too too ill to come. And then in November 1996, there's a launch of a photo book of hers called Roadworks in New York City. So she goes there in a car with Paul, but decides at the last minute she she doesn't feel up to it. She's not well enough. And so sandwiched between those two events, uh, she records backing vocals to a few of these songs mm. so uh, we see her recording backing vocals to heaven on a sunday amongst yep. other songs and we know that the, the song heaven on a sunday was recorded on the 16th of september 1996 so that is in between her being too ill you know ha- having had one round of chemo that was not successful being too ill to come to the the uh, liverpool institute uh, opening 
Uh, and so that's about three months after that. So uh, at this point, the, the the mood among the McCartney family is is one where they're sort of they're trying everything they can. Mm. But I think Paul at this point probably a part of him knows that she probably doesn't have very long, and mm. she and she dies in April nineteen ninety eight. So she dies wow. just less than a year later. Yeah. So I think towards the end of this year was when there was a, a plan for sort of promotion around the what would it have been anthology volume three yeah and i think in the end mainly because of linda's illness there's very little promotion it's right it fell, yeah three. i remember reading about that at all yeah that is it fell apart at that point because of that reason yeah so i think in, in terms of the way this film is being made so you can see linda singing backing vocals and paul sort of uh, directing her from the mixing desk yeah and there's a nice family atmosphere about it and then there's uh, him playing Calico Skies in the studio with her sort of sitting next to him and she's sort of mouthing along to the song. You know, she's it's not, really lovely. Like, it's, it's lovely, it's, isn't it? it's, yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's a lot of moments of Paul and Linda in this film. I mean, first of all, without knowing the context of all of that, uh, all of that stuff that's happening behind the scenes, I was quite taken with how little Linda there was in this film yeah. because the last documentary I saw that we covered on here was Wingspan. Yeah. And she's very much his musical partner, at that point in his career. Yeah. So I guess it struck me that actually Paul Solo is really is Paul Solo and there's actually very little input from Linda yeah. in that point. But what we do see of her is really nice because it's it's you know she's she's obviously looking at him very lovingly as he's playing these lovely songs. There's a moment early on I think when they're both riding horses and he, he has a bit of a voiceover where he's talking about her and he says she's my baby, she's my girl. Yeah. And it's genuinely sweet and and lovely and it's 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 nice seeing the two of them together you know even given the circumstances that would have been happening at the time yeah it's it's um he has a habit of that sort of towards the end of her life referring to her as his girlfriend which is nice he he refers at her memorial service in new york city he says she was my girlfriend i lost my girlfriend Mm. and and he says something really nice in this as well about having just got the uh, it just got a knighthood, which he get he got in I think January uh, nineteen ninety seven. Which again, she wasn't well enough to attend uh, that ceremony. He says, um, "Oh, and you get to make your girlfriend a lady, even though you know you always knew she was or something like yeah. that." Yeah, it's really nice. But it is nice, you know, because you get to make your girlfriend a lady, kind of thing. And it's although she was anyway, because they've been married for just under thirty years when she died, and uh, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that if. You know, they probably would still be together now if she, oh, yeah, if, she yeah. if she had lived. You know, that, that relationship really did seem rock solid. Rock, yeah, you know? I completely agree. And yeah, and I think there's something nice in, you know, a, a guy in his mid-50s referring to his wife of 30 years as his, as his girlfriend. Yeah. Because it sort of harks back to a sort of, a sort of childlike enthusiasm for one another uh, and a sort of embracing of sort of... Uh, quite sort of like carefree r- romantic values. Yeah, of you know, course. Which yeah. I think just seems to have characterised their relationship in quite a lovely way. And I, you know, I, I know it's it's probably not appropriate to apply meaning to songs or song choices and stuff uh, without knowing the full facts. But I did wonder uh, when Paul talks about wanting to end the album with Great Day, mm. he says there's this obviously this, you know big orchestration on the end of Beautiful Night, and then. He says about uh, after that, he's got this like sweet ditty 
that he thought would be a nice thing to follow that to end the album on. Mm. But he does also say it's he mentions this is a thing that we used to do with the kids early on. Yeah. And it did occur to me that because it's such a nice sweet song if it has like a family connection that maybe there's a sort of extra special meaning having that as a closing song for him if he knows his wife you know is going through this and might potentially pass away soon. Yeah. Like I say it's probably not right to suggest that might be the case but I guess it's it's the kind of song that feels like it might be loaded with a personal meaning for him yeah it does feel that way doesn't it it was interesting when he said that like oh we used to play that you know it's great days talking about so that, yeah. that song I was like, oh we used to play that with the kids and it made me think of and he probably is thinking at the same time there is footage of them on the farm in 1970 where they're playing songs that end up on wildlife. They're sitting in the garden singing like Hey Diddle and songs yeah. like that. Was that on Wingspan? I think when we, we, we watched, there's yes. some footage of that in that. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The next time around she'll be And so, uh, if if Great Day is from then, and you and you can when you listen to it, you can completely see that it's like a very basic acoustic song, and it's also based on like a, a very basic, not even a sort of proper, if you like, chord shape, where he just kind of yes. it's got two fingers and descends, and then you know, and then hits the E chord at the end in a way that sounds quite bluesy, um, and it really fits in with. Uh, the kind of songs they were coming up with, which do sound a bit like just sort of nursery rhymes that they've come up with for the kids. Kind yeah. of thing. So it's nice. I think also, so I mean, he does seem to have a habit in general of not wanting to end albums with the big flag waver, mm. but to just uh, afterwards, you know, ha- have that, let that song finish and then have a, a slightly more throwaway one to finish the album, almost as if to sort of, in the same way that Sergeant Pepper album ends with the 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 looping uh, laugh yes. track thing, almost you- as, as if like this, we've just had day in the life, and uh, you know it feels like in- incredibly important and serious, and so they have to kind of undercut it with yes. a joke. Well, the yeah. obvious one is Her Majesty, right? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's what I was thinking of when I heard this. I, yeah, absolutely. It, what I felt was really interesting about that though is because and Beautiful Night is a is a great song, very yeah. big epic love song, obviously, and then like you say. Follows up that big orchestration with this this smaller ditty. It's interesting that that is a choice he he makes quite deliberately. Mm. This film makes the opposite choice because I think what it does is it covers Great Day first and then ends with Beautiful Night, and that's the last song that we hear because it feels like the film is more appropriate for it to end on a big climactic mm. piece of music, yeah. and then that's what we hear as sort of as it goes into the credits yeah i guess it's an interesting thing for for paul to have made that artistic choice for his own album and for the film to contradict that Mm. i wonder if there is was any thought given to whether or not it should follow the same thing or whether actually at some point someone has had to have a conversation about how film is a different medium to music (laughs) and actually yeah there's a reason why we might want to do it in a different order yeah maybe yeah because i suppose um like beautiful night is a song that he wrote sort of in the 80s and so you can hear on the uh, i mean you can hear the demo on uh, on youtube or wherever but it's also on the uh flaming pie 2020 
what's it called? The archive collection, those yeah. sort of remasters of the albums that he put out. There's lots and lots of, of good sort of outtakes on that. But, um, but yeah, you can kind of tell it's from the eighties. It has eighties production values. And while the lyrics aren't finished, it, it, cause it is tempting to listen to the, the final lyrics of beautiful night and sort of, and attribute them to his current situation, you know, cause actually the line and I'm left stranded wondering why mm. seems very, very pertinent to what's going on in his life. And perhaps he is thinking about, what's about to happen in his life, you know, and yeah. how he's going to react to that, you know. There's a lot of imagery about boats, in that song, yeah. you know, about sort of rowboat. And, there's, you know, there's uh, there's footage in this documentary of him sailing in, I think, Sydney Harbour in a very small boat on his own. He, he, he see, seems to be thinking about uh, solitude, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, th- there's a solitude coming which he's going to have to face. Yeah. And how will he deal with that, you know? It's a really good point. And, you know, it's probably... Again, it's always a bit of a tricky area to get into song interpretation. He might have even spoken about this song, and it's going to contradict uh, everything that we've been about to say. But um, my interpretation of um, listening to that song is that is it that is him talking about what what I guess what heaven means to different people, as in not necessarily afterlife heaven, but like you know what is your ideal place. And when he's talking about, um, I think it's the first line is around fishing. That I guess that is sort of solitude but it's like a piece isn't it is yeah. what i think of then and then comparing that with some people want castles in the sky which is much more sort of pointedly sort of afterlife driven and then when it gets to the chorus where he's talking about a beautiful night that is his interpretation so when he's left stranded wondering why i think i mind my, my thoughts on that was him saying why would anybody else want anything other than this mm. you know like a beautiful night with someone that you love and uh, that was um which would also speak of the situation with, between him and Linda at the moment. Yeah, I think it, there's always what always comes out in the sort of songs about, like even going all the way back to sort of lovely Linda and 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 songs mm-hmm. like that. It seems to be very much an enjoyment of the, the, the homeliness, you yes. know, the sort of home life that they shared, you know. And so, you know, there are lines in Beautiful Night. Or something like be, being here in this room seems to me the perfect way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. And you and me together, nothing feels so good. Even if I get a medal from my local neighborhood, uh, which might be to do with his knighthood, who knows? Um, it makes but, sense if it's not. If it's not, I do feel that's a terrible line. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> right. right, right. Uh, yeah, if yeah. it is, that makes sense. It, do but, you think maybe, or maybe he wrote it in the 80s and then yes. as soon as he got a knighthood, he was like, oh, right. This, better, now, this, now this line works. I can dust use it. off this song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, the other great thing about that song is obviously that is when we get introduced to George Martin in, yeah. in the film. So yeah. Paul comes to Abbey Road Studios to uh, oversee George Martin's string arrangement for that song, yeah. which I really love that whole section because it was really interesting to me. I think you see it so rarely how that process works yeah. where you actually, where he is picking out melody lines from particular instruments and saying, can we pick that out a bit more? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes... You know, I'm left a little bit uncertain as to how much input he's actually having in a string arrangement composed by someone else, but that was quite cool to see. I think was mm. uh, and and some of the some of the brass 
that comes through in that song is great and I think that that feels like from the looks of this film that's Paul driving those elements to it however the most important part of that whole section of the film to me is when George Martin arrives at Abbey Road Studio because he seems to me to be carrying a packet of crisps <laughs> <laughs> and yeah um my first thought was you'd never see Paul carrying a packet of crisps entering Abbey Road Studios he's too self-aware yeah, 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 yeah. my second thought is I wonder what brand of crisps George Martin eats when he's composing a string arrangement for a Paul McCartney song and and the only information I had to go on it and I could be wrong maybe it wasn't a packet of crisps but it did seem to have a particularly bright foil back so in my mind I'm going straight to like hula hoops wheat crunchies bright foil bright foil I'm thinking McCoy's yeah well it, yeah it could be McCoy's yeah, yeah. It, it, at that time period 90s McCoy's oh yeah I mean of course we've got a um, got to factor in, yeah. Got to got to got to factor in crisp packet inflation. You know, yes. Since, <laughs> since, um, yeah. But, but I mean, at the time, I mean, Golden Wonder were probably the market leaders. I'm going to say. Uh, so George, I'm going to say is. A Do you man, think he's brought it in so that he can sing Golden Wonder to the tune of Golden Slumber? <laughs> <laughs> he's been thinking about that for months since the last time him and Paul got together <laughs> it just like it, yeah he saw a packet of them and he was like oh it's, uh, uh, Paul will like this actually yeah this this, this would be good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, as an aside I think didn't George Harrison invent Marmite crisps did he yeah so there, there is I think it's uh, one of the sessions for revolution I forget, uh, maybe Revolution Number One or the or uh, Revolution the single. There is an outtake in which George is talking about because uh, he was quite keen on Marmite. Uh, they, I think, he was quite keen on like Marmite cheese and lettuce sandwiches. Is something that he asked to be brought in the Let It Be sessions, I think, or maybe it's in these sessions. And then he is talking and saying, "Oh, they should do Marmite crisps. That would be a thing." And I think he says like, "Oh, we should get on the phone to." I think he says Golden Wonder, actually. Does he? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so you should make Marmite-flavoured ones if you rise in. Do like I don't like Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, I mean, not to stick on the subject too long, but yeah. um, you do see Paul snacking during the recordings. And I, I actually quite like, you know, like, because when we are talking about this being sort of an earthier release and yeah. there's this idea of Paul presenting himself as a bit more like an everyman mm. my mind does go to like there are no like snacks for celebrities right so he must just be like chowing down some roasted peanuts or something yeah like yeah, yeah. he's literally like just popping yeah yeah absolutely you know? and of course you know it's, it's at adam buxton asked uh paul what's what's your favorite snack and he said it's a bagel with butter and marmite and then hummus spread on top of it uh, that's a lunch that's not a snack no, that's a fair point. That's not. He's so out of touch with the common man. <laughs> he's, he's embarrassed himself. There, isn't he? You're right. I did try it after after I listened to that podcast, and it is delicious. Really? To be fair to him. Yeah, yeah. I, the man can do no wrong. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's uh, a bit of time dedicated at the start of this film to his art, and he talks about how he's um, achieving certain effects uh, in his painting. And he talks about why he kind of likes sort of experimenting with with, with painting uh, as a newfound hobby. He talks about that, doesn't he? Like just after uh, going jogging, he jogged for a bit. And then there's yeah. also this other side project, which is um, Tropical Island Hum, which we see a bit of, yeah. uh, which is the cartoon short that he's, I guess, overseeing. He voices all the characters for, and Linda voices one of the characters as well, doesn't she? Yeah. You do get this impression that for a film that is about trying to promote this album, <laughs> there is a, quite a lot of time, and quite admirably, I think, quite a lot of time spent on, here are all the other things that Paul wants to explore creatively at the same time yeah. as recording an album like yeah. he is just one of these people that just wants to pick up everything and just try his hand at everything and see what comes of it yeah definitely and, and i think because obviously like you know you and i have seen firsthand that the results of that of that instinct of his in 1984 with the release of give my regards to broad Street, yes you know? have, yes um <laughs> of the, course but i mean the the thing about that is that i think this was the result of sort of mpl uh, sort of wanting to extend into films and him thinking, well, I'll just make a film then, you know. Yeah. Whereas now he seems, I mean, so obviously like the painting is something he can broadly just kind of do on his own. And like, because he's Paul McCartney, by the way, I do remember, I was looking at them thinking, oh, those are good paintings actually. Yeah, it's yeah, sort, yeah. Of, like, the sort of impressionist feel to them that I quite, quite enjoy. But, you know, broadly speaking, he, if he wants to get someone to exhibit his paintings, it's probably not going to be too hard, even if they were rubbish, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, so that is more of a kind of side project, but actually, like doing an animated film is the kind of thing that sort of now the nineties does seem now to be a time where like technologically there is sort of enough stuff lying around and enough people sort of working for him in various guises or that he can kind of hire in various guises to just sort of get going on little creative projects like this. So we also see that he, uh, so he's, previously done the Liverpool oratorio, uh, sort of first classical piece. Uh, we see a little bit of footage of that. And then he's sort of in the studio because he's writing Standing Stone, which would be his second classical piece, which sort of comes out, I think, towards the end of 1997. And he's writing it on a sort of, I think it's like an Apple Mac, right? It's a sort yes, of, it's uh, like the yeah. older Apple yeah, Mac. Yeah, it was really, yeah, yeah. He says, oh, it's it's on this. And he sort of points to the computer. And then he's sort of, and then he's sort of, he's obviously had someone set it up for him so he can play the keyboard and then it, transfers into like a choir arrangement isn't it right exactly. and he's, he hits the lower notes is like the big chappies <laughs> and then he gets high it was like the little lassies yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's 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 sort of part of a playfulness when because he's he's giving someone a tour of his studio yeah and and so i think uh, i'm not sure who it is but the person's recording audio for and and i think this is this is kind of what ends up being the sort of ubu jubu um the sort of radio uh, radio broadcast he made that was sort of released variously in sort of B-sides 
uh, of the CD singles for Flaming Pie. Which, which I think can also be put in that same category of Paul just being like, oh, this might be fun. Yeah, it's just sort of general restless creativity, yeah. you know. And, I'm just going to um, try my hand at creating like a fake radio broadcast. Yeah, because it might be a laugh, Yeah, you know. But yeah, like the, the guy who was giving the tour of the studio to, that dynamic is really interesting. So I, I wasn't sure whether this the guy is recording him for a, a radio show and then Paul takes uh, some of it and uses it in Ubujubu or whether the guy is employed by him to record it for Ubujubu. Mm. I, I, I don't know which is which. But whoever this guy is, it, so Paul is kind of doing the standard anecdotes and he's saying, oh, here's the Mellotron. And uh, uh, he acknowledges that, uh, oh, I, I sort of, I did this bit in the anthology as well. Yeah. But like, uh, oh, I think it's might be set to the uh, appropriate flute thing, so I can. Oh, maybe it sounds a little something like this, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then plays the opening to Strawberry Fields, and so I think the guy is quite enjoying that. But then Paul, like, he's sort of demoing a synthesizer he has, and um, he is uh, showing like a sort of how does he describe it? It's kind of like a sleazy, yeah, uh, vibe where he can get a sort of like lounge lizard kind of vibe coming out of it, and then he starts like impersonating a guy trying to pick up a girl, yeah. And he's making the guy laugh. And Paul really feeds off the fact that he's making a guy laugh. And I don't th- it, and it's, it's really interesting to watch a guy who, by the way, let's say, you know, as a contrast, we see footage in this of him playing, uh, what's the stadium in Brazil, I think it is, in Sao, yes, Sao Paulo. Yes, he breaks the record for a number yeah. of 184,000 right. people or something. Right. So uh, this is a guy who, ha- who has like, entertained 180,000 people at once, yeah. but is now completely and utterly focused on making <laughs> this one guy laugh. Yeah. A guy who he, like, doesn't seem to sort of be his mate or no, anything. No, no, not at all. And that's a really interesting dynamic. It reminded me of like a, a fun uncle dynamic, yeah. where it's like you know he's sort of zeroed in on a toddler that he's making laugh, and it doesn't matter who else is in the room or what other conversation yeah. or what other business people need to tend to. Mm. They are now having to put up with this one sort of very precise interaction between two people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it's I don't even know uh, how fun and funny it is to us as a viewer. Mm. What's fun and funny is the fact that Paul is so intent on making that person laugh. Yeah. You know, like the the, the, the skit stuff that he's doing really yeah, yeah, yeah. like is is kind of fun and passable for a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> now, a, a, a bit of it really did make me laugh where he's sort of impersonating like, hey, can I buy you a drink? And then he impersonates the woman being picked up. He does. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And does a, a, a kind of like... Uh, a sort of like young woman sort of cockney accent which is brilliant yeah and i found really funny and the guy in it really it really finds it funny as well Ooh, come on baby can i buy you a drink oh all right where you from then i'm with the government all right i'll have a gin in it well come on baby my little darling Want to drink with me? Come on, honey. Maybe we'll go back to my flat. My flat. I'll go on and twist my arm. Yeah. It's back. Yeah. I do 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 do. You see, you can have acres of fun on these things. And so, yeah. No, I, 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 you're right. It, it's because it, there's a slight sort of cringe factor to it, I suppose. Yes. That, that slight sort of embarrassing uncle 
bit that he has had, you know, ever since the ever since the eighties, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, when people were sort of always making fun of the whole uh, Maka wacky thumbs aloft thing. Yes, you know yeah, sure. how he was always characterised that way. But the um, the fun thing about the that precise skit that he does about being picked up at a bar. Do you know what that reminded me of? What the sort of scripted improvisation in two of us you know when he's at the piano and him and John Lennon have that interaction where they are yeah. doing like a film noir scene and it's like they're meeting <laughs> at a bar and stuff it just really reminded yes. that and it made me think oh that's actually that film two of us really captured that sense really well because yeah. this is you know obviously this recording Flaming Pie would have come out four years before that film came out yeah. but yeah it, but I mean it, it does seem to have tapped into uh, the kind of thing that Paul does yeah for yeah. a laugh as it does later on when Ringo's in the studio and the, like so Paul's at the piano he's sort of yes. running through Beautiful Night and then he starts playing a sort of daft sort of saloon bar version of the same thing. So it's like yeah. this juxtaposition of like uh, quite uh, like sort of poignant lyrics, if you like, just played in a very silly way. And they end up singing like and You're a Bastard too, or something yes, like that. Yes, that's right, yeah. But it, one of the other things about that as well is it really, I'm always thoroughly impressed about how good Paul is at creating these characters, getting their voices. Like his voice work is brilliant. He's very good mimic, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. good. And he's so good at doing this kind of stuff off the cuff. Yeah. There's another scene, there's, there's another moment later on in the film where at the Abbey Road studio, George Martin has sort of this sheet music slung over his shoulder. Yeah. And Paul... Uh, seeing this immediately goes into like fashion designer uh, mode and uh, yeah. starts basically commentating on George wearing like this Versace outfit yeah, 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 yeah. and it was just brilliant and then, and then he stays in character as he walks away back in uh, you know <laughs> uh, back into the main control room yeah, uh, yeah and that's completely spontaneous yeah it, it and I think when the Beatles were all together, when the Beatles were all together, and they would clown around, you know, and you get a lot of like Hard Day's Night or sort of the JFK airport press conference when sort of America fell in love with them for the first time, partly because of their personalities and how naturally funny they were around each other. So you never had any... Uh, at the time, it wasn't at all surprising to you that Paul McCartney was a funny guy, mm. right? But uh, solo Paul and like older Paul in particular, I always feel like when he does something that's like sincerely funny, you always think, oh yeah, oh, good for you, Paul, you're a funny guy, you know, <laughs> like we've known this for years that he's funny, you know, it's, and it's it's interesting that, so Paul is now appearing on uh, he, a podcast with uh, Paul Muldoon, uh, with whom he did the the lyrics, uh, sort of half, half, um, half lyrics book, half biography um and so yeah as if, as if this wasn't a crowded enough market he's got to do a bloody podcast as well <laughs> and so a recent one that was about uh when winter comes and mull of kintyre so it's kind of talking about the farm in scotland and paul is kind of impersonating his sort of gruff scottish farmer next door neighbor and the way he <laughs> does that 
it's so like his Scottish accent is great and you can tell he's a guy who's like he's really sort of nailed a few accents and and knows when to wheel them out for sort of maximum effect but he also just kind of creates a character it sort of works really well in a funny way as you know he's probably like the best podcaster in the world as well if he if he wanted to turn yeah. his mind to it, <laughs> of course it? yeah like, as, it, as it turns out he's also amazing at that but but I think uh, you know one of the things, you know, as podcasters, you know, we're creating theatre of the mind, you know, uh, and and um, but that, but that's kind of what he's doing is, uh, it, you know, he he obviously has the ability to sort of create a comic character who you can really picture in your head from his the way he is uh, sort of giving voice to them, you know. Yeah, and you see that in all sort of uh, elements as well. I was just thinking, obviously, there's the animated uh, short that we talked about as well, but. Mm. You know the fact that in the last few years he's started releasing children's books as yeah. well, and it's, yeah. it sort of speaks of the same knack for sort of tapping into these sort of nicely, quite easily crafted characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the whole, then we should probably talk about how, not just how good the film is, <laughs> which is normally how you talk about films. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, I think for this is. How well does this film do what it sets out to? Which in, I think in this case is promote his new album. Yeah. Would this have made you want to go out and buy the album? Because that's essentially why it exists in the first place. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I did buy the album. Um, because you watched the film? I don't think I did watch the film, you know. Because I, I was looking at the date when it went out and was trying to figure out what I would have been doing at the time in sort of May, May 1997. <laughs> what, what, May the 5th on a Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Studying for my A-levels probably. And, well, probably not studying, but, you know, I was you know, I was engaged in the process of, uh, I was going to sit my A-levels in a couple of months, I suppose. So what, one of the things about something like this is that this went out on VH1 in the US and on ITV in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so... That's like an hour-long documentary on a primetime TV channel. Whereas now this kind of thing would probably be shorter and would be released online, right? Yeah. It would be released on YouTube or something like that. Because a t- TV station is probably not going to broadcast... Uh, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, you, you get the old thing like this perhaps. But um, It feels like you used to get more of it. I feel like now it would need to be like a big event moment. For right. A, and as much as a new album by Paul McCartney was still a big deal probably that wouldn't have got necessarily got a uh, an hour documentary out of it uh, now yeah absolutely so I think it, it, it is selling him more than it's selling the album in general um, it's a decent enough showcase for the songs it's showing you uh, so it's showing you like enough of the sort of big numbers on the album to make you aware of like this sort of, it's it's key beats if you like you yeah. know um, but I think in general it's interesting the way he seems to be approaching it as a promotional thing now obviously this is this, it needs to be read against the context of his life at, at the time that it's being filmed which we've talked about he, he I mean there's an interesting scene when he's on the phone with uh, Jeff Baker who is his PR man, his publicist at the time. Uh, so Jeff Baker is a guy who I'm not sure how long he'd been his publicist, but I do know that Paul fired him in the early noughties, post Linda dying and maybe around the Heather Mills relationship time when the whole thing... Do you remember that thing with um, Paul and David Blaine? When, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, what do you mean? When, like... 
David Blaine made Paul disappear. No, it was, a, <laughs> no, it was that thing with like, David Blaine was like uh, one of his stunts that he used, he used to do around that time was he was uh, suspended above the River Thames in a Perspex box. Yeah, remember that. For, for you know, for days or whatever, whatever yeah, it was, yeah. and it was a thing. And Londoners uh, would it would just sort of go and look at him. <laughs> and <laughs> what uh, a weird time that was, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, um, and uh, Paul, who I think at the time uh, was uh, was carousing quite a bit. You know, I think he was you know perhaps a bit lost and a bit drunk. You know, you know sort of or going out and dr- drinking a bit too much. So yeah, he turns up a bit drunk at the David Blaine thing sort of late at night and sort of looks up at him and says out loud, uh, <laughs> uh, what's that silly C word doing uh, up there? And this makes the papers. So it's in the tabloids as, a, as you know, sort of McCartney in foul mouthed uh, Blaine rants or whatever. I, I, I know you don't mean this, but immediately I was picturing front page, like front page news. <laughs> 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 which would just be hilarious yeah 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 um he and so uh, this is quite embarrassing at the time or at least paul felt it was quite embarrassing to be honest i mean paul is using the odd f-bomb in this documentary which yeah he does yeah which which uh, for me is not sort of shocking but i did think to myself oh okay you're allowing yourself to be broadcast using that word which yeah. is kind of uh which which maybe at the time and he was sort of like you know, tr- trying to be a bit more hip actually went went down quite well. He does go to great lengths to talk about how some of these songs are edgier and tougher and mm. rockier, like yeah. it, like World Tonight. He talks about how that's got like a really rocky riff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it does feel like I, I guess I, I can see what he's saying, but like when he said that, I was like, is it? Because it just feels a little bit sort of guitar driven more yeah, than others, yeah, but yeah, not necessarily hard. Yeah, no, that's true. But yeah, but with that and the swearing, I mean, what a rebel! You know? <laughs> yeah, no. So yeah, this at the time, uh, this this makes the papers. It's a bit of a tabloid story, and uh, and I guess this is a time when Paul is not that keen on being the center of attention in the tabloids. I'm not sure whether he's with Heather Mills at the time. Uh, I, I can't remember that exact context. But anyway, Jeff Baker, who is his main PR man at the time is fired, I think in 2003 uh, for his involvement in the, the David Blaine thing for like allowing Paul to be made to kind of look silly in the tabloids as Paul saw oh, it. Yeah. But the dynamic between them, obviously this is six years prior to that, but the dynamic between them in uh, in this phone call that you see in the documentary is quite interesting, right? Because I think uh, Jeff is like, seems to be sort of slightly beleaguered and it's sort of almost trying to get an answer out of Paul, out of, you know, do you want to do... There's lots of magazines want to do interviews. And Paul's kind of saying, well, I think it'd be good just to do... Just, let's just do one magazine per territory, you know. Yeah. And the thing will kind of take care of itself. And and so there's a couple of ways you can look at it. One of which is that it's quite hard being Paul McCartney's PR man yeah. when he doesn't particularly want to do a lot of PR. Yeah, yeah. And he's just saying, oh, relax, it'll take care the, of the, itself. The, the difference between the two men in that moment as well, mm-hmm. where uh, Paul is just sat on like a stool on the phone yeah. and he's kind of messing around with something in his hand. <laughs> yeah. And and Jeff, his publicist, is at a desk which looks like absolute chaos. There yeah, are like yeah, papers yeah. spread everywhere and like pens and everything. Like he's got his head in his hands. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. he looks really stressed yeah, out. Yeah, smoking like and, nine cigarettes yeah, at a time. Like drinking Gavascon. You know? Paul is literally saying, don't sweat it. <laughs> <laughs> like that's his, that's his input. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the, the other thing, Paul, the last thing was like the, the launch of the, of the documentary. Rather than doing a separate thing. Um, I don't know where you fancy on that or whatever, but somebody was saying... Um, yeah, it wasn't me. That wasn't me, mate. Yeah, better here. Yeah, I think, you know, I think of it being a quite simple affair, really, uh, instead of some hugely complex thing that gives us all a bad dreams at night. Let us have a laugh, and let us not sweat, and let us put an album out. End of story. All right, Jeffrey. I'll see you around. Thanks a lot. But, like, the, the other way you can read this is that uh, is that Paul has other more pressing things going on in his life. And while he wants this album out and, you know, and he believes in it, he doesn't want to be taking up a lot of time with promotional stuff. So whether Jeff knows what's going on in Paul's life, whether he knows what Linda's going through, I'm not completely sure um, at that time. But I would imagine he probably does. Like yeah, he's yeah. an insider. He is he's trusted with information and certainly... Well, he, he presumably he'd be, he needs to be across it to make sure that that news doesn't get out in a way that Paul would want it to. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when Linda does eventually die, when she does die in, in April 1998, she dies at their ranch in Arizona, which has been a, a place that they have always kept completely private. So uh, the press, the public at large, don't know that this ranch exists. So, and there, there's always a, a sort of code um, that they use uh, sort of among the, the team uh, and, and sort of employees and whatnot. Whereas when they say Santa Barbara, they mean the ranch in Arizona. Right, um, okay. So the story is initially put out um, that uh, Linda McCartney died in Santa Barbara, uh, surrounded by friends and family, etc. And then uh, I think some journalists later do some digging and there's no register of uh, of anyone called Linda McCartney dying in Santa Barbara on that date or whatever. And so they they kind of start um, getting into that and asking questions. And so the the family later, like quite quickly, has to put out a revised statement saying, uh, saying, OK, she didn't die in Santa Barbara. She died somewhere that we'd prefer to keep private. Um, and so we, you know, ask you to respect our privacy at this time. Okay. But Jeff Baker is very much... Uh, he's he's sort of in charge of he's directing that, that you know so yeah he he must be across all this stuff I suppose you know yeah, yeah of course yeah because the other the other thing about that whole conversation as well is I think when you have um, a shot of Jeff looking quite stressed and asking him like how are we going to launch his documentary Paul's answer of don't sweat it and we're just going to release an album or we'll just do something that's fun yeah I also took that to mean he's very aware that he's being filmed right now yeah and it's in his interest to be seen to be quite relaxed about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, just going back to that whole point of whether or not this film is effective in promoting the album or actually whether it's about Paul putting across an image of himself. Um, I think it's potentially more than that. And also maybe it's because he's still in anthology mode. He's just done an anthology project yeah. with, with, of, of the Beatles. Yeah. And this is the same director as some of the, episodes of anthology isn't it yeah jeff uh one I, I think his name is pronounced one for one for w-o-n-f-o-r apologies if i've got that wrong but yeah he, uh, so he uh passed away at the end of 2022 but uh before that he was fairly constant mccartney sort of documentary 
collaborator. So before mm-hmm. before he was involved with Anthology, he directed, there's a McCartney TV special called Put It There, and then he directed, there's a documentary about the making of the Liverpool Oratorio called Ghosts of the Past, which he directed, and then he gets involved in the Anthology. Later on, he directs Paul's Live at the Cavern Club, gig mm-hmm. so yeah it's it, like it's so it, i think as i mentioned earlier that paul seems to be getting comfortable with his uh, legacy and also getting comfortable with what he wants to do with the rest of his career and i think surrounding himself with constants in terms of the people he works with seems to be a feature of that yeah. so it's around it's in the early noughties when he sort of gets the backing band who he still plays with today. So he's now played with that band for 20 years or so. Uh, and Jeff Wanfer seems to be a guy who, if he wants a documentary made, uh, and music video, by the way, he directed uh, the, the music video for The World Tonight. Paul also says, by the way, during this film, he sort of points out that uh, Mary McCartney and Alistair Donald, her husband, who later would go on to make the Wingspan documentary, mm. also made a video for The World Tonight, uh, which they did. And you can see it on... Um, it's the one where he's sort of... He's, right. he's sort of twirling an umbrella. He's wearing like... He's in very, very comfortable dad clothes. Yes. Like, like sort of sandals and sort of... Basically a bit like pyjama trousers and um, sli- slightly corny, I think. Yes, yeah. <laughs> point about Jeff Wanfer being uh, the director of this is that this does feel like it follows a similar kind of template to anthology you have the focus on the songs and the story behind the songs but um, also spliced into that sort of Paul sort of going about his day and his other projects and um, similar to how you know in anthology you have the three remaining Beatles meeting up and sort of having a chat and, and all that kind of stuff and it does strike me that that is why this film ends up becoming a little bit more of a Paul project than a Flaming Pie project, because there it feels like they're sort of they're coming off the back of that big, you know, massive piece of work, anthology, and it's they've just sort of kept that template going. Yeah, it does seem that way. I think I remember that when we talked about the Brian Epstein Arena documentary, mm. uh, which was also made in the nineties or came out in nineteen ninety eight. I'm going to say that we were talking about how the 90s seemed like a kind of golden age for Beatles documentaries in terms of lots of people, probably because of the anthology, becoming comfortable with speaking on camera uh, about the Beatles and almost like a template was kind of established from that for Beatles documentaries going forward. Yeah. But And we spoke about how Paul in that documentary... It is kind of now sort of comfortably in anecdote mode when he does this stuff, you know, and you can still see, you know, even more recently, well, I suppose it's 12 years ago now, you know, when he's a talking head in the George Harrison living in the material world, the Martin Scorsese documentary, you know, and, you know, through into eight days a week, the Ron Howard documentary, he's very, very comfortable reeling off the old stories. And he, and he, he gets it now. And I think that from the 90s, onwards that seems to be the time at which he's just kind of slotted in uh to that mode as i say it's part of him became becoming comfortable with his legacy and and all the rest of it but i think in terms of being on film talking about himself talking about the beatles there is a sense that he around this time he just kind of uh, he learns how to do it yeah you know yeah, like yeah. he just kind of like snaps into 
documentary Beetle Paul mode. But, but but also, I guess in retrospect, it's quite nice watching this film and seeing him not immediately go to those well-worn anecdotes. Yeah. So in this one, for example, I mean, I, there was something that he mentioned really offhanded about how, and I'd never known this before, about how he wrote the tune to When I'm 64 when he was like 15 or 16. Yeah. But also because he's talking about new songs at this time and he's talking about how they came about and when he wrote them and the circumstances of, of those songs being created. Mm. It's actually quite nice to hear. I feel like they're, they're sort of, they almost feel fresh now just because they aren't the same stories that we've heard before. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So yeah, he does in general have good stories about writing songs. Um, and I think, so uh, like one of the ones he talks about is, is it young boy? So uh, I can't remember whether it's in the documentary or whether it's just on Ubu Jubu. Oh no, he's talking about um, yeah, that's on Ubu Jubu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so it's where so L- Linda is doing a photo, uh, do a photo shoot, or she's doing um, she's got a meeting uh, on Long Island, I think it is, about a cookbook she's doing, and uh, and Paul says, "Oh, I'll drive you. I'm not doing anything else, you know." And and by the way. It's again another one of those kind of nice homely things. Just like this incredibly famous man is just like, oh, you're going to do that thing? Yeah, I'll drive you. You know, just sort of drives yeah. his wife to the thing and just like, oh, I just, uh, you know, oh, and I took my guitar. Yeah, he says that. Yeah, I had my guitar with me. Of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Of course you did. <laughs> but yeah, I think, but there is that sort of restless creativity that we that we spoke about. So I think he thinks to himself, uh, I'm probably going to have a couple of hours to kill. Uh, oh, I'll take my guitar. You know, yeah. like, whereas you know, which is. Great, you know, whereas these days maybe just like maybe sort of play a game on his iPhone or something. Oh yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah, you know, exactly. Mario Kart. <laughs> right. Yeah. And 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 there's a sort of a weird twist in that story where he was writing it, and then he sort of realised there was there was a girl like lying down on a sofa in the same room as him, who he didn't realise was there and had been like listening to him write the song the whole time. You know? Yeah. So that he, he, he ends that anecdote with like, oh, maybe I think she just went in there for a kip. Which <laughs> is a nice way to to end that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then the other story as well, which I really like, he talks about Little Willow, and yeah. he says that he um, wrote that because a friend of the family died, and it was quite interesting him saying that he uh, he wanted to write that song uh, almost as a way to sort of talk to his kids about that. So it's not just him talking about the passing of a family friend, but also he's found like a different kind of angle on it that he wants to explore, which is quite a, a, an interesting thing to hear and talk about. Yeah. I think he frames it as, you know, Oh, I, you know, I want to do something with this feeling or with this mood. I forget yeah. how he puts it. The, I mean, one of the interesting things about the way he talks about that. So he is talking about uh, Maureen Starkey. So Ringo's first wife. So Ringo had been divorced from Maureen for quite a while by this and had been with Barbara Bach for quite a long time by this point. But, um, I think everyone's still quite friendly. Paul had sort of described the relationship between uh, the McCartney kids and the Starkey kids as sort of being like cousins. Mm. So, but Paul describes this as, you know, a, you know, a family friend of ours who had died from cancer and we were on holiday and we got the call and, you know, and we were all, but, but he doesn't name Maureen no. in the film. And the interesting thing is that the, the origin of Little Willow as being about Maureen Starkey is very well known and was well known at the time. I think it may, I don't have the CD inlay card to hand, but I do think she may even be mentioned in the notes, I think, mm. as this song is about or dedicated to Maureen Starkey. So it's odd. He deliberately re- just refers to her as a family friend. Because by the way, like Ringo's in this documentary a little bit as well. Yeah. So it, so it's it, so it may have been that at the time 
he hadn't had a chance to speak to Ringo about it and he didn't know how comfortable he'd be so he didn't want to you know or hadn't had a chance to speak to her family or her kids or whatever so just didn't want to put her name out there and then later on you know it, it trying to edit it out or whatever yeah 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 or, or you know later on then you know when someone said oh yeah no it's fine then they did put it in the cd notes or, yeah, or whatever sure. that yeah. kind of thing you know so it's maybe just the sort of sensitivity but yeah but it, it is nice that he does that it's nice that he's sort of thinking that way about family friends he's obviously like a guy he's, he's sort of quite uh, empathetic it seems because you know you think also about the sort of origin of hey jude and that he's sort of driving out to sort of visit cynthia and julian yeah. after she and john have split up you know which is not something that every man would do like you know w- one of my best friends has just split up with his wife i'm going to go and visit his wife and kid and make sure they're okay you know yeah. it's like there's not a lot of men think that way in in general and you know and to think uh, you know this this is a family friend who is like you know my friend's ex-wife who he's been divorced from for quite a long time but still a family friend and you know and i'm sort of affected by her death and you know i want to sort of communicate in that in some way to my own kids and to her kids you know and and that's just the way he knows to express those feelings and uh and there's something there's something quite sweet about that particularly because so maureen starkey died in December 1995, which of cancer, which is the same uh, leukemia, I think, which is the same month that Linda first is diagnosed with breast mm-hmm. cancer. So, uh, it, you know, I can imagine which of those happened first. I'm not completely sure, but you, but basically, like, th- like this is a bad month, yeah, sure. and, and and he must be feeling that this is all kind of snowballing and sort of everything is happening at once. And yeah, I think. And expressing things like this through song just seems to be his most natural way through them, I think. Maybe that's the the way in which this film best serves as promotion of the album, because for all of the, you know, cutting up wood and making a fire and <laughs> sailboat stuff, um, showing that he's finally, or for the first time in a long time, creating something that is authentic, it's actually through sort of how he talks about the writing of those songs that actually that's when you really get that sense of that and that's when I feel like the songs become more interesting to me in those moments yeah absolutely so maybe the film does its job after all maybe (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that is a a wrap on Paul McCartney in the world tonight or Paul McCartney in the world tonight still not sure which one it is but before we go we would love to hear from you have you seen the film uh, what do you think of the album? More importantly, do you have any more Beatles-related crisp puns? Uh, like cheese and glass onion. <laughs> if you get any more, you can get in touch with us on all of the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of our other episodes, you can leave us a five-star rating or a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.